Welcome to America the Bazaar. I'm your host, Jordan Rausch. And I'm Jeremy. This is a weekly history podcast that dives into all the stories that made America into the beautiful weirdo she is today. Yes. So I do have some news for our listeners that I feel like we should share. Yeah. We're going to have another baby. Yes. Soon-ish. Pretty soon. Pretty soon. Yes. We're due in May. Mm -hmm. So I would like to let everybody know that we are are going to try to keep putting out episodes once this baby gets here. But just so you know, we <laughs> <laughs> life might get in the life way. Life might bit. get in the way, but um yeah, I think some exciting news to share with you all. And yeah. it's kind of weird like being able to keep that a secret because you just hear my voice and don't see my belly. Huge belly. <laughs> so I'm wearing a shirt right now that says eating for two. <laughs> And Jeremy does have a shirt that says drinking for three. (laughs) Yes, it's near and dear to my heart. Yes. So for this presidential trivia, the question is, which president was the most prolific whiskey distiller in America the year after he left his presidency? Ew. I don't know. Taft comes to mind? He's a big whiskey guy? Yeah. I don't know why. He looks like a whiskey guy. I yeah. think it's the mustache. Yeah. But it wasn't him. Oh. Benjamin Franklin? <laughs> no. Okay. So the answer will be at this the end of this episode, so stay tuned. Was it new, newer or older? Ah, I'll wait till the end. Dang it. <laughs> I'll tell you, it was um, definitely the first, the first in the first twenty presidents. First half. The first half. Well, that really narrows it down. Well, I don't want to narrow it down too much for you. <laughs> also, the first ten, the first quarter. I'll give that to you. You can mull on that while we do the episode. Norma Leah Nelson was born on September 22, 1947, in Simisport, Louisiana. Norma's parents, Olin and Mary Nelson, were Jehovah's Witnesses and would take Norma and her brother to knock on doors and distribute church literature. Olin abandoned his family when Norma was nine years old, so Mary moved her family to Houston, Texas. Mary was also an abusive alcoholic that would physically and verbally abuse Norma. Norma believed it was because she was second child that her mother never wanted. And she just never felt loved by her mother. When she was 10 years old, Norma and her friend ran away to Oklahoma City. Norma and her friend robbed a register at a gas station to make it to Oklahoma City at 10 years old. (laughs) It's like, just find the 10-year-olds that are walking around by themselves. Yeah. Though They're the ones who did it. Yeah. Unless one sat on the other one's the shoulder. Two did, and had like a big long trench coat. Uh, yeah, like, like in the little rascals. It was a very tall man with dark glasses <laughs> and a hat. But a very high-pitched voice. Yeah. But they were caught shortly after a maid called the cops on them when she walked in on them kissing in the hotel room. Oh. Yeah. Instead of being returned to her mother, Norma was made a ward of the state and was sent to a Catholic boarding school in Dallas, Texas. Norma attended the school from age 11 until she was 15, 
and was then deemed too old to stay at the school, so she just kind of just got kicked out. Mm-hmm. She was sent to live with a distant relative of her mother, but shortly after moving in, her mother discovered that Norma was being raped by the relative. Oh. And so brought her back to live with her. Norma began to work at a drive-in burger restaurant and met her first husband, Woody McCorvey. Norma and Woody got married when she was 16 years old. Jeez, Norma- that's a lot to happen in a year. Yeah. There's a lot to happen in 16 years of life. Sure. At 18, Norma was pregnant with their first child. When Woody found out he was livid, accused her of cheating on him, and began to beat her. Norma kicked him out of the house and later gave birth to their daughter, Melissa. After having Melissa, Norma began to drink heavily. She often went to gay bars and began to explore her sexuality as a lesbian. When Norma's mother found out about the lesbian bars, She waited until Norma left for a weekend with some friends and then filed a police report that Norma abandoned her daughter and she took custody of Melissa. To be fair, Norma was doing a lot of drugs, drinking a lot, but her mother's not the best mom either. So when Norma returned to find her daughter gone, she continued to drink heavily. At 19 years old, Norma became pregnant with her second child, After a drunk affair, Norma put this child up for adoption and then dove heavily into drug abuse where she used acid, among other hallucinogens. In 1969, at 22 years old, Norma found herself pregnant for a third time after sleeping with a friend of hers. Hmm. While confirming the pregnancy with her doctor, she told him she did not want to go through with this pregnancy. Abortion at the time was only legal in six states, Alaska, California, Hawaii, New York, Oregon, and Washington, and Norma didn't have the money to travel to any of those states from Texas. Norma's doctor recommended that she contact his friend, Henry McCluskey, that was an adoption lawyer. Norma wanted an abortion, though. She just didn't want to go through the pregnancy Mm -hmm. instead of adoption, but she agreed to meet with McCluskey anyways. She didn't have a lot of options, so... Before meeting with Norma, McCluskey had filed a suit that challenged an anti-sodomy law in Texas. In the case, Alvin L. Buchanan v. Charles Batchelor, where his client had been charged with sodomy after having consensual oral sex with another man. McCluskey had received news about the case from another lawyer friend, Linda Coffey. So after he talked to Norma about her wanting an abortion instead of adoption, he recommended that Linda and Norma meet as a favor to Linda. With lawyers giving work to each other right. based on specialty. Right. Pretty pretty common. Yeah. yeah. Preferring cases. McCluskey knew that Linda Coffey and her associate, Sarah Weddington, were looking for a case that would let them file a suit against the abortion statutes in Texas. The needs for their case were very specific. The woman had to be pregnant and wanting an abortion. She couldn't have the funds to travel to another state for a legal abortion. The pregnancy couldn't be very far along so that she wouldn't give birth before the case was filed. And the person had to be able to take the publicity since they couldn't guarantee her a non in a non intimate Oh my gosh. <laughs> a non intimity. No, I can't do it. Anonymity. That's what I shit. Can I read it? That's anonymity. Since they couldn't guarantee her anonymity. <laughs> 
my... Since she couldn't remain anonymous. <laughs> yes. That's... Since she might not be able to rename an anonymous. Yes. Anonymous. Since she couldn't remain an anemone. She was a... A sea creature. Norma met with them at an Italian restaurant where she told the lawyers that she had become pregnant after being raped. Hmm. Norma seemed like the perfect client for them to take on. On March 3rd, 1970, Coffey filed a suit against the Dallas County District Attorney Henry Wade, and in the lawsuit gave Norma the alias Jane Rowe to keep her anonymous. Right. Coffey and Weddington then amended Roe v. Wade to make it a class action suit so that any ruling would apply to all women in Texas. The hearing began in May, and Norma gave birth before a decision was reached. The baby was adopted by a family in a private adoption process. On June 17th, a three-judge panel struck down Texas's abortion statutes. Texas immediately appealed the decision. While her court case continued through the, through the appeal process and moved towards the Supreme Court, Norma met Connie Gonzalez after trying to rob her gas station. A romantic evening. Yeah. Connie was like, what are you doing there? <laughs> Norma's like, oh, man, yeah. please don't call the cops. And Connie said it was love at first sight. Did she? Yeah. <laughs> so Norma moves in with Connie. Connie had some advice for Norma. Stop getting pregnant so that you can have a better life. Which Norma was like, everybody makes mistakes. Women make mistakes with men. And they just end up paying for it. Mm-hmm. Oral arguments for Roe v. Wade began in the Supreme Court in December 1971. When Justices Hugo Black and John Harlan retired, Justices Lewis Powell and William Rehnquist took their places, and oral arguments were given again in October of 1972. In January 1973, the Supreme Court declared that this right of privacy, whether it be founded in the 14th Amendment's concept of personal liberty and restrictions upon state action, as we feel it is, or as the District Court determined in the Ninth Amendment's reservation of rights to the people, is broad enough to encompass a woman's decision whether or not to terminate her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. Then, all state anti-abortion laws were deemed unconstitutional. Four days after the Supreme Court decision, Norma publicly identified herself as Jane Roe. In an interview with the Nashville-based news service, the Baptist Press, Norma said, It's great to know that other women will not have to go through what I did. Just kind of the crazy thing about Roe v. Wade... Jane Rowe, Norma, never had an abortion. Right. She gave birth to her child. Three kids. Yeah. Well, and the child that she was bearing at and, the time that the case was right, yeah. filed. Yeah. About a decade after the Roe v. Wade decision, Norma began to volunteer at the Aaron Women's Health Center in Dallas, and every year on the anniversary of the decision would give an interview to the press. Most of these interviews included Norma's account of being raped that led to the pregnancy. In 1987, Norma sat down for a television interview with Carl Rowan. During the interview, Norma acknowledged that she had not been raped and the father of the child was a consensual partner. Even though her lawyers had never even mentioned her rape in court, thus making it irrelevant to the case case and the Supreme Court's decision, Pro-life activists began to use this to argue that Roe v. Wade was based on a lie, and thus should be nullified. 
Mm. Because everybody had heard that she had been raped and Mm -hmm. thought that that was the reason the Supreme Court decided the way that they did, Mm -hmm. even though that had never been a part of the trial. Never made it into the record. Right. In 1988, trying to make some money, Norma had 1,000 copies of the first page of the Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision that Norma signed with the intent to sell them. However, the idea never took off, but some of the people that were helping her with it established the Jane Roe Foundation soon after. Its purpose was to help poor Texas women obtain legal abortions. The foundation didn't really go anywhere, and Norma cut her ties with it and created a new foundation in 1990, the Jane Roe Women's Center, that had offices in San Francisco and Dallas. Norma also made money with royalties from the NBC television movie Roe vs. Wade, starring Holly Hunter, by giving talks and publishing her life story titled I Am Roe. In 1995, Norma was working at a Dallas women's clinic called A Choice for Women. A pro-life Christian group called Operation Rescue then moved in next door, with the intent to convince women not to have abortions. They're right next door, so they could yell at women going into the clinic that they're about to, you know, murder their babies, all of that kind of... all that awful propaganda. Yeah, that still goes on today. Norma began to visit Operation Rescue and would ask the people working there to pray for her. She became close friends with the national director of Operation Rescue, Flip Benham. Months after meeting, Benham baptized Norma in the pool of a member of his congregation, and it was televised. Hmm. Jane Rowe being baptized gave pro-life groups a lot of fuel. Mm-hmm. The head of Texans United for Life declared, The poster child has jumped off the poster. Hmm. Norma then resigned from her position at A Choice for Women, shut down the Jane Rose Women's Center, created a new nonprofit, Row No More Ministry, and wrote a new autobiography, One by Love. In this new book, Norma retold her story, but included that she was now appalled by both abortion and homosexuality. Hmm. Even though she still lived with Connie, Norma insisted that the relationship was now platonic and would introduce her as her aunt or cousin instead of her partner. Mm. I watched the video of her getting baptized, Mm -hmm. and Connie's there, but she looks really, really sad the whole time. Yeah, really defeated, yeah. And she spoke about how, basically, the members of the church that Norma had joined had forced Norma to renounce her relationship with Connie. Yeah. And homosexuality altogether. Sure. But Connie stayed with her. Trooper. Yeah. Norma did a Nightline special on ABC where she talked about how she still supported a woman's right to choose an abortion, but only in the first trimester. A few months later, Norma retracted her statement and declared that abortion in any form was a sin that is shameful and wrong. Norma began to lead pro-life protests that advocated for Roe v. Wade to be overturned. In April 1996, Norma went to the Supreme Court to attempt to have Roe v. Wade overturned. Really? Yeah. To go talk to them. Jeez. In 1998, Norma converted to Roman Catholicism, and at her first communion, a priest spoke about how Norma had been complicit in the evil of Roe v. Wade, but can then continue to detail her salvation. Norma traveled around the world to give anti-abortion speeches and always brought Connie along with her. 
What? Yeah. Oh my gosh, Connie. Just being... and But, like, Norma said nothing was going on. Connie didn't really say. Mm-hmm. But who's to say that... They weren't having some sort of... Romantic relationship still. Mm-hmm. Norma testified in front of Congress in 1998 on the topic of abortion. In 2000, she met with lawyers from the Justice Foundation and helped collect 1,500 affidavits from women that spoke about their terrible experiences with abortion. Norma, along with the Justice Foundation, then founded Operation Outcry, which describes its mission as seeking to end the pain of abortion in America and around the world by mobilizing women and men hurt by abortion who share their true stories of the devastating effects of abortion. In 2003, Norma filed a motion with the U.S. District Court in Dallas asking to consider new evidence that showed that abortion hurts women and to overturn the Roe v. Wade decision. However, an appeals court denied her motion. Norma then testified in front of Congress again in 2005, where she said, Senators, I urge you to examine your own consciences before Almighty God. God is willing and able to forgive you. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for my sins as Roe of Roe v. Wade, and for our sins in failing to act and abortion, and to truly help women in crisis pregnancies. After that, Norma continued to work with the pro-life community and took part in several anti-abortion protests. When Randall Terry, the founder of Operation Rescue, ran as an independent for a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives from Florida, Norma appeared in one of his television ads saying, Do not vote for Barack Obama. He murders babies. While she was standing in front of several images of aborted fetuses. Mm -hmm. In May 2009, Norma was arrested on trespassing charges after joining over 300 anti-abortion protesters that showed up to President Barack Obama's speech at the University of Notre Dame. Later that year, she was again arrested for protesting at Sonia Sotomayor's Supreme Court nomination hearing. Jeez. Norma died on February 18, 2017, in Katy, Texas, due to heart failure. In May of 2020, FX released a TV documentary titled A.K.A. Jane Roe. In the documentary, Norma gave what she called her deathbed confession. In it, she said, The anti-abortion groups manipulated and used her to further their cause. She admitted that it was all an act, the speeches, protests, etc., in exchange for money. Norma still believed in a woman's right to choose to have an abortion. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. That's a roller coaster. <laughs> She's very back and forth. Yes. Kind of loses some credibility. Yes. Oh, definitely. And I know that in both of her autobiographies, they're obviously so have so such different takes on her life. One is pro-choice mm-hmm. and one is pro-life. pro-life. And though in it, she like accounts all these things in her life that several people are like, there's no way that that happened. Mm-hmm. Even Connie was like, she talked about how after she came out as Roe versus or Roe and Roe v. Wade, mm-hmm. that somebody came and like shot up their cars. Mm-hmm. And Connie's like, no. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. And that when she was pregnant and the case was going, that, you know, she asked, when is the case going to be decided so I can get an abortion? And her lawyers were like, it's, 
you're going to have the baby mm-hmm. before it's decided. And so that she got super drunk and like punched her belly. But then her lawyers were like, no, she, first of all, never asked us that. Second of all, we always made it known that she was always going to have this baby. Right. There's no way that the court was ever going to make a decision, be that fast. Yeah. So she always knew. So that probably hmm. never happened either. Hmm. So it's just kind of crazy, this huge landmark. monumental landmark, Land- decision landmark decision in our country that is still controversial, hotly debated, yeah. Yeah, controversial today, was based on somebody who seemed like she couldn't make up her mind yes. on what she really wanted right? and kind of just did it to just kind of said whatever she thought she had to say to make money and mm-hmm. make ends meet. Right. Yeah. Norma said that when she would complain about not getting enough money, Operation Rescue was afraid that she would come out and say that she believed in a woman's choice to have an abortion. So they would just Increase pay her whatever they thought she needed. Yeah. Hmm. And um, the FX documentary is really good. It's only about an hour long. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of quickly in an hour, it like details her life and the Roe v. Wade decision. Mm-hmm. So it moves very fast. Very, yeah. But they, there's a lot of interviews with her in her last few years. And she was like, yeah, I do not care if somebody has an abortion. Really? Yeah. She's like, it was just she all was so for the money. And basically, what did you say? It was 2008, 2007 when she was going up against, had TV ads against Barack Obama. Uh, 2012. Oh, yeah. this is, oh, this is for a second term. Yeah, wow. for a second term. And wow. so, basically, and then she died five years later. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty wild. But, and then she talked about, she's like, oh, yeah, like Operation Rescue, they definitely used me. Mm-hmm. She's like, but I use them too right. for money. Right. So, I don't know. Sure. I just, it is kind of crazy how I never knew about who Jane Rowe was. Yeah, never, never, hadn't heard her name before. Yeah, and for somebody that's also been so public, yeah, for like the rest who's, of her who's, life, whose whose case, yeah, whose case was so publicized, yeah, and for an individual who was herself a public figure of sorts, both in pro-choice and pro-life, yeah, on both camps, yeah, and that's that's pretty wild, yeah. So my sources for the story are Norma McCorvey, The Woman Who Became Roe, Then Regretted It by Joshua Prager, The Life and Legacy of Norma McCorvey by Jacqueline Anton, The Accidental Activist by Joshua Prager, and a.k.a. John Roe, a television documentary by FX. Hmm. That was a good one. Thanks. Yeah. It's It's definitely a hot topic. It's very divisive within our... Uh, country uh, yeah within our country with even within local communities and everything and i don't think it ever will not be controversial you know there's like some decisions that you're like oh obviously like back then especially with like civil rights and stuff like Mm -hmm. you're like oh and you know however many years that's not it's gonna be like oh why did why why was that controversial right obviously they this is the choice that we should have made. And, right, right. But I think abortion is one of those things that I don't think will ever be, no, will ever not be controversial. a controversial topic. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I honestly, and I honestly didn't even, anyways, presidential trivia. Yeah. 
what president was really into whiskey. Yes. Our first president, George Washington. Oh man, was it the cher- was it the was it cherry brandy <laughs> from the cherry tree that he chopped down? I don't know. But in seven. 70- oh wait, that was Abe, wasn't it? Honest Abe. No, it was George Washington that cut, cut down, down the, the cherry tree. tree. Yeah, and then said I could not tell a lie. Yeah, that that's wasn't a true story. That's just folklore. <laughs> George Washington folklore. Right, but him drinking cherry brandy. That's probably very true. Yeah. He drank a lot. A lot of whiskey? Yeah. Drink, just drink a lot in general. Oh, right. What, what, what was the deal with the, the, the tab of the... I don't remember how... I know what you're talking about. Yeah, but was George it? Washington was famous for running up bar tabs. Yeah. And I believe during his presidency, he spent about what would be $50,000 today on alcohol during his eight years of presidency. Man, that... That sounds reasonable. <laughs> sounds legit. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That doesn't sound reasonable. That sounds like a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Especially in eight years. Yeah. In 1798, the year after he left the presidency, Washington was the most prolific distiller in America. His Mount Vernon distillery produced 11,000 yeah. gallons of whiskey that year. Nice. It's a lot of whiskey. Yeah. For a tiny, for like a much smaller country for than yeah, we have yeah, now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, that's what I want to get into. I'm a home brewer. I'm uh, been on a short break due to school and other things. You you do beer though. Yeah, you haven't made whiskey yet. Yeah, but I've always wanted to get into distilling. But kind of, kind of, kind of worry. Like, I don't know. My friend Justin, he he always talks about distilling, and he's always like, "Yeah, man, you just get a, <laughs> you just need some copper." Copper coils and and an old uh, pressure cooker. Those are the best. The old pressure cooker. And every time I hear old pressure cooker, I just imagine like the dangers because I've heard horror stories about how those things explode and stuff. Yeah, and so like take like, off people's faces. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so that sounds very moonshiny, yeah, like how he uh, describes. Yeah, not, <laughs> like this applies to me. Right. But hey, I'm not going to bash it because my home brewing setup is very rudimentary. Like it's. It's got the basics. It's not. It's not even all stainless steel, you know. Yeah. Like I got some some some, some buckets, yeah, some, some buckets and buckets, and yeah. stuff. And it's like, yeah, I wonder what the neighbors think I'm doing out here, just you know, with my giant wooden spoon stirring <laughs> right. the the mash tun. So, yeah. Oh man, I have to make a beer this weekend. Should make a a beer in honor of. George Washington, our super alcoholic president. Sounds good to me. Hopefully we get some nice weather so Jeremy can make his beer and you all have a nice weekend as well. And in the meantime, we hope you stay safe. Stay healthy. And until next time, stay stay weird, weird, America. America.